how can we try to fix democracy to where it actually works? Institutions. it's supposed to be a good thing. It has to be institutions. Like, and that's why I think all of us are here. I, and I think why media in particular is such a big, important institution here. Like media in many ways is, is reflecting back our polarization and then making it worse. How will a generation of young people exercise the rights and their freedoms that are required to live in a democracy like ours if they don't know what they are? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Well, we got a packed show today. Democracy is in decline around the world, according to new analysis. We'll talk about the reasons why. A new front in the CRT school fight, why you might be hearing a lot more about curriculum transparency this year. And finally, police arrest two hackers accused of laundering over $4 billion worth of stolen Bitcoin. All the weird details surrounding that story. But first things first. Last week, Twitter and several mainstream media outlets piled on comedian Dave Chappelle. Headlines claimed that Chappelle helped kill an affordable housing plan in his Ohio hometown. A video also surfaced of Chappelle appearing at his local village council with an ultimatum. Hi, I'm Dave Chappelle. <laughs> I just want to say, and Marianne, I could talk to you about this privately. Um, I don't know why the village council would be afraid of litigation from a $24 million a year company while they ex out. A $65 million a year company. I cannot believe you would make me audition for you. You look like clowns. I am not bluffing. I will take it all off the table. That's all. Thank you. So was Dave really trying to kill an affordable housing plan? Well, after diving into the village's meeting minutes, videos, local news sources, and the developer's proposal, we found this story to be much more complicated. As it turns out, the developer, who was trying to rezone the property just north of Chappelle's house to build what is called a planned unit development, never set out to build any affordable housing on its 53 acres. Instead, the developer had plans to donate 1.75 acres to the village for future affordable housing. So did the mainstream media get this story horribly wrong? Uh, what is going on with Chappelle here? Yeah, I have a few embarrassing uh, things to, to point out here. I think number one is that I had, even before the scandal, I'd gone on Zillow and looked up housing prices in this town because I'm like addicted to using Zillow just to like travel the world. And I was like, oh, I wonder what a house costs in Chappelle's neighborhood. So that's number one. Number two is I think the story is like a window into how we as a society and especially media treat these kinds of stories is like this is a town of 3,872 people. Tiny. And it's gotten so much attention where, you know, there's a moment this morning where I was researching for this segment where I was looking at traffic patterns, sewage, electric in this random <laughs> town in Ohio. And I just stepped back and I was like, wait a minute. I live in Soho, New York, <laughs> one of the biggest NIMBY areas of, that's ever been created in society. And not only that, I helped elect a city council member, my, my buddy Chris Marte, shout out to him, who is the most NIMBY city council member uh, in New York City right now, fights every development that comes into this neighborhood. And so I was like, maybe I should examine my my own practices here. It's why we actually did a, an episode of Connor Doherty at the New York uh, from the New York Times a couple episodes ago of Regressors, where he talked through... Uh, some of these challenges that progressives have where we oppose uh, development and it leads to, you know, increased uh, scarcity of houses, increased prices and why that's bad. Uh, but as you pointed out, like this is complicated. We don't know what's in Chappelle's heart. There, it seems like there are many reasons why you could have opposed this thing. And what I would ask people is take some of that energy that you were, you were bringing to Chappelle and maybe figure out what's going on in your neighborhood down the street from you 
and maybe examine and change your practices. That's certainly what I'm trying to do here. Definitely. And I think that this is kind of symptomatic of a larger phenomenon that we're all kind of guilty of when a story comes out and it's somebody that you might like or you don't like and you initially kind of have you're you're a little more willing to accept the negative story about someone that you already don't like and i think that that's kind of what happened on twitter and with the media rolling stone had a headline dave Chappelle's latest achievement helping kill an affordable housing development which was pretty ad hominem and i think it's worth noting that like we've been talking about the story since last week here at the lost debate and we spent a lot of time doing our due diligence and pouring into these minutes and trying to figure out what actually is happening here and it turned out to be a lot more complicated than these sort of like quick flashy headlines have to say. And even I would say as someone who works in journalism, most journalists don't even have control over what that headline says. And so when we have these sort of ad hominem attacks like this with a situation like Chappelle, there's actually a lot more of meat behind the story. And we actually pulled a, a second clip that hasn't been getting as much circulation that gives a lot more context to what Chappelle is talking about. Um, I just want to say I'm, uh, adamantly opposed to it. Obviously, I live behind the development or the proposed development. Uh, I do have many business interests in town. I've invested millions of dollars in town. If you push this thing through, what I'm investing in is no longer applicable. And I would say that Oberg can come and buy all this property from me if they want to be your benefactor, because I will no longer want The average age in the village is 49 years old. Without a school, you will not attract young families, and this city will not live beyond the retirees that decide to settle here. And I'm surprised that Marianne McQueen is is suddenly uh, not averse to change because you always are when I uh, 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 propose a change. And now all of a sudden we have to recognize the change. These changes are inevitable, but we do have a decision on what they will or could be. And I think we should use more of a visionary eye, uh, eye instead of a reactionary one because the potential of this place is immense and Ober is not the only solution. So I think this clip, this clip comes from December. So this is a much deeper debate than just this one meeting that went viral. Um, and I think it's worth noting that he's saying there's an inevitability to creating affordable housing in some sense, but that this specific model that was being applied might not be the best solution. Yeah, there was something he said at the end of this that I want to point out. He said, we should use more of a visionary eye instead of a reactionary one because the potential of this place is immense and Ober, which is the developer, is not the only solution. I want to underline that statement. This means that he is, I think, and a lot of these people are against all of this. Like, And I think I could quibble with their strategy to oppose this you know, particular zoning or that zoning and say this may lead to less affordable housing or the others. But my sense from Chappelle in this clip is he doesn't want any of this. He doesn't. He, it's not that he's against affordable housing necessarily. I'm not in his heart. But he's just like, I don't want this development, period. That was my sense of this clip. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think people saw this proposal and saw like the, the words affordable housing and how now if the proposal wasn't going through, then the affordable housing wasn't going through. And they just cherry picked that and turned it into this larger argument about affordable housing. But as we've already talked about, the plan only allowed it 1.75 acres. Which is nothing. Which is nothing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to hear it's a lot, but well, in, yeah, in, in New that York town, City. it's got to be nothing. Yeah. I know, you know, because I was looking at Yeah, the you acres. were looking you at this. That. You were trying to get move that pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, too, 
there was no plan in their proposal to actually build affordable housing. It was like, we're going to donate this land to the village and they can eventually figure out how to build affordable housing here at some point years in the future. So it's not like he was physically killing affordable housing. It all, it almost reminds me of like high school when like you, if there was Mary somebody, Ann, well, you know, well, Mary yeah, Ann get at it again. Well, Mary Ann's at it again, but also too, it like it reminds me like if you were somebody in high school that you didn't like and you heard a rumor about them that was just yeah. salacious yes. and everything like that, you'd be like, oh, I could totally believe that because that guy's a jerk. So yeah. that's what this is kind of it just sounds like all of the people the detractors here who hate Chappelle they piled onto the story because of previous things that they didn't like about Chappelle but it had nothing to really do with this tiny town's actual politics you know yeah well before we go on Corey walk us through this visual that that you helped create with the, the help of our team just to give a sense of Chappelle's why Chappelle is particularly animated about this development. Well, well I'm not going to take credit for this. We, we have we have a wonderful editor and producer here Nick who helped uh, who helped make this uh, picture and basically as you can see on your screen right now. Yeah, for those who are at the, and, listening and for, along. For those listening, yeah. this is, we're basically showing what the development would look like. And it is, it is like literally, when we say in Chappelle's backyard, it is in his backyard. And, and if you're watching, if you're not watching, we have Chappelle's head basically <laughs> where his house would be. And then the, literally, there is no space between the top of his head and the bottom of the development. There's literally like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it's, what the scale would be, but I mean, that's like less than an inch for sure. And so this this is clearly, clearly this was going to be in his backyard. And clearly there was a lot at stake here for him. And he just didn't want these this proposal in his backyard. And again, I don't see any affordable housing. A lot. I don't even know where the 1.75 acres yeah. would be in this in this setup. I it's don't important even see it to know that what would be in his backyard is the development, not the affordable component. Right. Yeah, because it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not there. Well, and we'll, no we'll throw this up on our Instagram for the podcast listeners, uh, so that they can they can check out this nifty graphic. I think one thing just to close the book on this is may, hopefully this we can use this story to educate people about some of like the affordable housing issues around this country. And so, for example, there is this debate around. Well, there's only luxury homes going in here. And that's one example of, of an issue and trend that I would pull out and say, all right, well, that's relevant for people everywhere. If you live in San Francisco, Seattle, New York, et cetera, often people like my councilman will be like, this is a luxury tower and therefore it's not going to make an impact on affordable housing. And what I have heard credible critics say back is, well, there's a downstream effect. If you build more luxury houses than the the other apartments, houses, wherever you live, downstream from that will become more affordable over time if you just increase the overall stock. Kind of sounds like trickle-down economics. <laughs> yeah, well, it will, you, you could think about it in New York, right? For example, like like a lot of these apartments that we're renting now were way, way, way cheaper before, right? So it's not like there, there's any fancy components to these apartments. It's just that their value keeps going up because of the scarcity, Right. So I think like, so it, like, let's say you build this quote unquote luxury apartments down the street from here and you double the supply in Soho, uh, then theoretically the, the places like where we are right now, where my apartment would be cheaper. That's, that's an argument. Now there's probably good counters to that, but I think like if, if we get out of this debate, like a more nuanced version of these debates around the country, that would be an improvement, I would say. Now on to our next story. Democracy is on the decline around the globe. Just under 46% of the world's population lives in a democracy, down from 49.4% in 2020. The 2021 report by the Economist Intelligence Unit sets a record low score for democracy around the world in the biggest one-year drop they've recorded since 2010. The reasons for democracy's global decline are complex. Sociopolitical trends, pandemic aftershocks, stress on the global economy, and conflicts around the 
the world, just to name a few. But the overall takeaway is pretty clear. Democracy is not strong in the world right now. So let's take a look at this from different perspectives. Ricky, uh, the United States prides itself as a strong democracy. We, we talk about spreading democracy around the world, usually by force. But are we really holding up true democratic values right now? Well, according to this analysis, it seems like we're on the decline. Um, we've been deemed a flawed democracy. We're number 26 worldwide. Our neighbors in the ranking are Chile and Estonia, just to give a sense, like not I don't think most people would have expected that as American citizens. Um, and the categories that they break down are elect the electoral process, political participation, uh, civil liberties, the functioning of government and political culture. And the places where we had huge losses are political culture and functioning of government. And I think, you know, in terms of the functioning of government, it's pretty obvious to anyone living in this country. Um, with January 6th, with the Russian collusion narrative, like it's gone from bad to worse in terms of people not trusting our democracy for a variety of reasons on a variety of sides of the political spectrum. Um, leading up to the 2020 election, one in five partisans on either party believed that violence was at least a little bit justified if their party lost, which is super frightening. Um, we have the issue with gerrymandering and the way that our two-party system has uh, kind of incentivized politicians to be the most extreme versions of their parties. The large and I feel growing middle of the country is not being represented politically and our parties keep driving further and further apart. And then in terms of the issues of political culture, I think that's pretty obvious. That's essentially why we're here and we have this company is because we have a partisan media, we have social media that's driving people further and further apart. I'd imagine that the pandemic and locking down and really only getting information and not talking to people through these lenses made things even worse. And we're at a place where 53% of Republicans say they have Democrat friends and 32% of Democrats say that they have Republican friends. So we're not talking to the other side. We're, we're afraid to air our beliefs. A lot of mainstream beliefs are considered beyond the pale. Almost two thirds of Americans say they're not comfortable speaking their minds politically in some contexts. And so if the issues that are on the table for our country to be grappling with can't even be discussed, I'm, I'm not surprised to see that we're lowering in the rankings. Yeah, that wow. political culture number really jumps out mm. to me. Uh, the There was this data from this uh, Varieties of Democracy Institute, and they've been tracking data from 1980 to 2020, and they rank regions and countries on a zero to four scale. And zero means that political groups interact in a friendly matter, manner, and four means that they interact in a hostile manner. And what's really interesting to me is that around 1980, we were around 1.5 on that scale, meaning we're relatively friendly with people who have different beliefs than us. Uh, and now we're approaching four. So that means that we've gone from friendly to hostile in, in my lifetime, because I'm older than both of you. Uh, and that's really scary. And I think a lot of us who've been around long enough can feel it, right? Like political discussions, uh, especially I, I trace this back to pre-Iraq war, used to be fun. Like you would be able to debate about the tax rate and you, you know, like everything felt like almost like a West Wing episode. And <laughs> now it everything feels so existential and hostile and personal. Yeah. And nobody's trying to persuade each other anymore. And Ricky, I want to underline what you said. This is why we start this company is like we have a theory that there actually is a, a group of people out there who are dying for nuanced discussion. They don't want to be manipulated. They don't want to fly a flag. They may have like strong beliefs when they go to the ballot box. And so like. They may be averse to like, you know, fake balance, 
but they want people to actually try to figure out the issues in real time with some some attempt at objectivity. Yeah, but it's not just a problem in America. I mean, this is globally we're seeing a drop in this the democracy index. I know you were doing some research about India and you were just you were telling me some crazy stats about what's going on in their government because technically they are a democracy but they're considered a flawed democracy like us. And so tell me a little bit what's going on over there. Yeah, the the the, the economist who also put together this report had a separate article in the same issue called and the title of this article was the organs of india's democracy are decaying and if you look into this data it's really scary india strangely in this past year went up in this ranking but over the past few years has dropped pretty precipitously and there was this one data point that really blew my mind uh, and this is from the association for democratic reforms they say that a record 43 percent of members of parliament who won seats in the 2019 general election in india had been charged with a crime, wow. 43%. 29% were booked for grave offenses, such as rape and murder. So that's a 109% increase from the cohort 10 years earlier. And here's the kicker, uh, a candidate with a criminal record is three times more likely to win than one without. So crime is literally paying <laughs> in India. This is a country with 1.38 billion people, the world's la largest democracy. And so this report, which you know focuses a lot on China and China's rise and its influence, is now being, like, we have that problem, but then at the same time, our world's largest democracy is decaying. And as Ricky described, um, you know, the world's most powerful democracy is decaying as well. And this is troubling. That's very troubling. The fact that you're three times more likely to get elected in India if you've committed a crime is insane to me. And this report also details just the fact that it's not only so much so that the countries that were already like authoritarian regimes, you know, they're remaining that, of course, but also that the strongest symbols of democracy in places like North America and Western Europe, they're starting to slip in these scores. And I think that's what's so troubling. But also, like you said, uh, you mentioned the China problem, and that's a big part of this because China has been so successful economically speaking over the last three decades. And that was not supposed to happen with a communist country. Like they were supposed to go the way the Soviet Union did and instead they've done the exact opposite. They've actually been expanding their economy a lot faster than we have been doing in the United States. They have the second largest GDP in the world right now. And a lot of people are saying that that's the reason why democracy globally is looking less flattering. I've heard things where Chinese leaders have said things like the Western electoral democracy model produces inferior leaders, time wasting deliberations and a lot of gridlock. And when I read those things, kind of sounds like our Congress. Yeah. <laughs> well, the same issue is is true of India to the gridlock. And, and the economist points that out. And there's this really awesome newsletter called Sinocism um, with an S. And they translate a lot of Chinese news, both like in the mainland, but also, uh, you know, Chinese news abroad. And what's really interesting to me is that the, you know, China, Chinese media, which is, you know, controlled by the state or highly regulated by nothing's really being said without them being okay with it. Mm -hmm. They're just repeatedly bangs this drum. They've been doing it for years. They've been talking about how flawed we are. They, they, they take every embarrassing weakness we have in our country and they continually bring it to their population say, look, see, do you want that? Or do you want what we have right now? And it just makes me ill because we're feeding the narrative by being so dysfunctional. This is not to let them off the hook. They, so I would much rather, to state the obvious, live in the United States than China. It's sure. by a long shot. Much rather live in India than China. But they're effectively using our own weaknesses against us. So, I mean, this may be a loaded question, but what can we do 
to help foster democracy and to help fix it. Because like you said, when China says something like that, I mean, when they have this pl- a planned economy where they can they can plan things out 20 years ahead and they don't have to worry about some crazy election happening four years from now ruining that plan. So how can we better uh, do that here where we're not necessarily plan everything out so ahead, but how can we try to fix democracy to where it actually works? Institutions. it's supposed to be a good thing. It has to be institutions. like, And that's why I think all of us are here. I, and I think why media in particular is such a big, important institution here. Like media in many ways is, is reflecting back our polarization and then making it worse. And so that's why we do this here. And one thing that's worth pointing out is that Canada, because I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners to the podcast, especially is also declining. And this report has, uh, you know, is basically saying Canada is starting to look more and more like the U.S. in all of the worst possible ways. Obviously, the trucker stuff is just a reflection of a larger slide happening in Canada, which is just really sad. Yeah, and I think it also requires kind of like a societal rededication and redirection towards the tenets of democracy. And, you know, I think as a young person, seeing my generation, the way that our attitudes towards different opinions, towards free speech, towards tolerating difference is in some ways on a deeper and more philosophical level really low. And I think, you know, we're we're several generations away from the founding of these democracies, like I mean, nobody alive remembers the the need and necessity for freedoms in America, for free speech, for for these values that are so central. And I think that our education system needs to recommit to to classical liberalism, to pluralism, to free speech, to the values that are so fundamental. And if that means civics education, I think that's super important because how how will a generation of young people exercise the the rights and their freedoms that are required to live in a democracy like ours if they don't know what they are? Yeah, there's like a ticket that you need to punch in a lot of neighborhoods around this country to even be in polite company. And the the kinds of yeah. things that you need to do to jump through those hoops are getting more and more elaborate. And I can speak of it from you know, progressive New York, for example. Like if you're if you're anti-abortion, if you're pro quote unquote police or anti-reform of the police, if you, you know, want to lower taxes, I mean, you start to go down this list and you'll say, like, if you have any of these beliefs. Uh, you're not allowed in to this, you know, to the conversation to a friend group or whatever. And I think that's, I think, super destructive. And we're starting to like self-segregate into ideological clans, and that can't be good. No, absolutely not. And in Alabama, it's the reverse. Like if you're if you're if you're pro-abortion, you wouldn't be allowed in, in that. If you're against guns, you wouldn't be allowed in, in certain groups. So yeah. it's definitely a problem. But Ricky, you mentioned education, and that's actually uh, what our next story is going to be about. The fight over critical race theory in schools is moving to a new front. Curriculum transparency. At least a dozen states have proposed legislation that would require teachers to post their lesson plans online. Now, supporters say parents have a full right to the fullest possible picture of what their children are learning. Opponents say it piles on unnecessary bureaucracy on teachers and could quickly lead to censorship in the classroom. Our resident uh a former school principal here. Well, you can, said it, not can, me. Can lead yeah. us, so that doesn't check those bingo cards. Um, can lead us in this discussion. So what do you think about this idea of uh, curriculum transparency? So I think there are, to take a step back about CRT generally, there are, there are different sort of phases of this, right? There was the original term, which was like this legal term that really wasn't in widespread use. But most recently, CRT has come on, come to take on a much broader meaning that includes a whole bunch of different things. And most recently, and this was, this was a 
big flashpoint in the Virginia elections, the CRT debate centered a lot around the curriculum being used in the classrooms and the trainings of teachers. And we'll get to you know some of the, the hotter debates about that today, but essentially they were pulling curriculum out of classrooms and trainings and saying, this curriculum is you know either trying to say that, you know, to use immutable characteristics to describe students and separate them or tell them to feel guilty about who they are or, you know, that kind of stuff. And then there was this second wave, which is the book banning stuff that we've covered before, where parents, elected officials, et cetera, are trying to pull books off of shelves. And as we've reported on and many others have, the trend is is towards increased levels of activity there where more and more books are being pulled off the shelves. So those are sort of two first phases. Now we're on this third phase, which is the transparency phase, where some prominent figures in this debate on the right are signaling that they're going to be pushing one uh, piece of legislation around the country to say, all right, teachers got to put up their curriculum. Teachers need to um, talk about what books they're using ahead of time. And the strategy here is very transparent. So Christopher Rufo, who's like the, in many ways, people describe as like the father of this modern strategy from the right on curriculum transparency, um, basically did a tweet storm where he described in detail what they're planning to do. And so, and I'll come back to those tweets in a second, but it's just very clear. This is a debate where they're trying to get liberals to oppose transparency. That's what, that's what this is about. Interesting. Ricky, I mean, you've, you're the person I think has been in school, the, the most recent out mm-hmm. of all of us. I mean, what are some of the things that you've seen um, just from your experience about like this, the separation of people and things like that? Mm. So I, um, I graduated in 2018 from my boarding school. So I was in the private school um, sphere. So I've, I would don't really know in terms of the public education, which is what's kind of in question here. But um, there was a recent Wall Street Journal expose about uh, associations of private school or independent schools. And Paul Rossi, who's actually a friend of mine, um, listened to like hundreds of hours of kind of DEI content and he personally thought that it was really divisive um and you know just in in 2014 i was going back through my school's community day that they held on martin luther king day where we had options of different lectures to go to and i pulled some of the titles for people who who wouldn't who i i if i wasn't if i didn't have this life experience i would look back at this and and all this debate and say well this sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo and like maybe the crt things overblown or maybe there's not weird stuff going on in school Wow. Bruce Lee and Asian masculinities, examining and understanding male privilege, inequality for all, unpacking white privilege, what is the role of skin color in society, everyday sexism. So these are lectures for a captive audience. What grade were you in? I was 14 at the time. So it looked like a freshman in high school. Freshman in high school, kids that are at a boarding school away from their family. And like you, I'm all for, it's a private school. They can do this, but I'm, I'm all for in a public school setting K to 12, where these are government officials, where they have a captive audience, they have little kids in their care, and we it's compulsory, we have truancy laws, and it's they're, they work for the government. I'm all for as much transparency as possible because there is weird stuff going on. I'm sure that, you know, I went to a woke boarding school, that's probably different from your <laughs> typical K to 12 institution, but you know, there is there, there is weird stuff. It's worth, worth pointing out. Yeah, there was something in this article that really, caught my attention and and it's it's worth mentioning that a lot of 
what I'm about to say hinges on the, the author's interpretation of these videos. And, and we reached out to them, and we only reached out to them yesterday to just ask like for the primary source material. So we'll report back if we get that, because that would confirm some of the things that I'm saying here. But one thing that they found, and I've seen other examples of this from around the country, but they say that within this training that they viewed, this is a quote, perfectionism, punctuality, urgency, niceness, worship of the written word, progress, objectivity, rigor, individualism, capitalism, and liberalism are some of the characteristics of white supremacy culture in need of elimination. Now, I've seen this kind of stuff around the country, and it, it rhymes a little bit with actual things that people like Teach for America were pushing at the time when I was working in schools. And my problem here is punctuality. So you're saying like showing up on time, that's racist in and of itself to say that that's white supremacy or objectivity, the written word. Like you're telling people who, who are working in K to 12 schools that the written word is white supremacy? Well, we have to take that with a grain of salt because this is one person's observation of these things and these are the adjectives they decided to describe these things with. I could see how some of these things, I mean, like punctuality, everybody needs to be on time, obviously. However, there is something called CP time. Uh, no, no, I won't get into that. <laughs> um, but, and then and then the whole thing with, uh, just a joke, by Am the way. Am I allowed to laugh at that? And, uh, <laughs> we might have to cut that one out. And then, um, and then but, 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 <laughs> this idea, I can make that joke. Uh, this idea that, um, there was another one that you, you know, the, the written word. Well, that may come out of this idea that, Certain people who are not white may speak in a different dialect, may, may use a different diction than what is used normally. And that not necessarily going against proper English, but saying that the inclusion of other ways of speaking should be at least uh, explored in these school settings. So I just think we have to take that kind of stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah, that's where the primary source, I think, would be really helpful. And that's where I step outside and say, well, what is this? Does this check out to use Ricky's example, like of her experience and then my experience in the schools? And and I would say this is part of a broader movement to weaken things like curriculum standards, standardized tests, the emphasis on math and reading, which I, I felt this viscerally, where like a lot of people from that sort of DEI camp were saying that emphasis on math, reading, writing were in some ways like propagating the capitalist system, racism, yada, yada, yada. And I just think that it's easy for you to say, you know, people who have all the privilege that, you know, making sure kids can read and write is racist. Because if, But if your kid came in and wasn't able to read on grade level or write on grade level, it would be a, you know, a massive, massive emergency for a lot of these families, Absolutely. you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not uh, advocating that we don't make kids read and write. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, we certainly should have rigor in, in schools. But some of the things that these these Republican legislators are proposing to go against CRT are, are really insane to me. In Florida, there is a bill being proposed that would put cameras in the classroom to monitor uh, kind of like a Big Brother-style surveillance of classrooms. In Mississippi, there are talks of live-streaming kids' class. I don't know uh, anybody who would send their kids to school that's working, they're not going to have time to watch the live stream yeah. of their kids' class. There's a state rep named Doug Ritchie, a uh, Republican in Missouri, that is proposing a bill that would uh, require schools to post all teacher training materials online in addition to descriptions of what is being taught. And then his claim is if schools are doing things right, they shouldn't have to fear this legislation. But I mean, that could be said about gun control. Well, if you're not a criminal, you shouldn't have you, to fear gun control. You could control. say that about every- You could say that about anything. Yeah, you could, they could audit my finances every day and use that argument. And use that argument. You know, and be yeah. like, oh, well, what do you have to worry about? Exactly. Uh, so here's, and this is, I think, really important. There's a, there's a line- uh, that 
a lot of these legislators are crossing. And let's talk about one side of the line first, which is I think the stuff that I think is legitimate about transparency. So I think it's helpful for schools when they post the curriculum being used in the classroom in a way that parents can access, you know, because that allows parents to help their kids. It allows them, you know, other parents to collaborate. I would, yeah. If I were designing a system, I would, I would provide an easy way for teachers to provide that transparency without like, you know, onerous requirements that it needs to be up that very day and that it needs to, you know, and that like, every single little piece of paper needs to be up there, right? But there, you could probably keep it manageable. Uh, a lot of good schools already do this. And I would also provide an opportunity for parents to collaborate because often what happens is parents are buying materials or creating materials or figuring things out about how to help their kids, but they're not talking to each other. So a well-designed system would actually connect parents to actually help each other within the system. But this is worth pointing out is like, that's one side of the line. When you cross over to this like surveillance stuff, I think that's a problem and it belies the strategy here. This is the, the Chris Rufo, the, the guy I was talking about earlier. And I'm sorry, like I, I'm reading this. My eyes aren't working really well together. But he's this is like a tweet storm he had from January. He said, my goal this year is for 10 plus state legislatures to pass curriculum transparency bills requiring public schools to make all teaching materials easily available to parents via the internet. It's time to get the political predators out of the shadows and return power to the families. The strategy is to use non-threatening liberal values like transparency to force ideological actors to undergo public scrutiny. It's the it's a rhetorically advantageous position and when enacted, will give parents a powerful check on the bureaucratic power. And then he goes on to talk about how he anticipates that the left is going to oppose this, which has been happening. Um, there was one legislator in Wisconsin who put out a really tone-deaf tweet about this and had to delete it. Obviously, Terry McAuliffe had a quote from the gubernatorial election, which is cringeworthy, where he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. So Democrats are walking into this trap opposing transparency, I think they need to be clear about the line. Say, I'm for some transparency, but I want to make it manageable for teachers, but I'm not for cameras in the classroom. I'm not for teachers harassing, uh, parents harassing teachers. And, you know, there's got to be some kind of balance here. I mean, to me, though, when you read that those tweets, that's just acting in bad faith. He's not doing this because he wants to allow parents to have a greater interaction with their children's education. He's just doing it to get the liberals in a gotcha moment and force them to capitulate. That's yeah. just that's just political engineering. That's not that's not what is what good does this do for the children? Well, I think it's worth pointing out that in the kind of contract of a public school teacher, it, they're serving in loco parentis, which means in place of the parent. And they, therefore, sh they're in sort of a pact. I, I work at FIRE, which is an organization that protects academic freedom. And they do point out that, you know, these codes between parent and teacher call for neutrality and impartiality when dealing with matters of contention in the classroom. And so I, while I don't like the, the, true surveillance aspects of these transparency bills. I have no problem with with requiring that school curricular posted if a parent wants to sit down at the dinner table when they know that a contentious issue is discussed and say, hey, what did you learn at school today? And this is how we as a family think about it and in internalize it. I have no issue with that. And I also... You know, I think there are versions of this bill, these bills that are going overboard, but at the same time, I don't really agree that it's a big brother sort of situation. I think it's what they're trying to facilitate is a way for little brother as the parents to see what big brother the government schools are actually doing and exposing their their children to. And so I I while I don't advocate for the like live streaming stuff, I think that is kind of weird. I I don't have any issue with making teachers have their curricula be public. 
I don't think there's any problem with the making it public. I think the problem comes in when a parent has a problem with something yes. that's in the curriculum, yeah. and then it becomes too easy to just overturn the lesson plan. Yeah, were, this is going to lead to a la carte, like bespoke education, which is unmanageable. We already have a teacher shortage in this country right now, and the idea that uh, th this is where the, the details really matter. I'm for certain parts of transparency, like I talked about. But we need to be clear with parents about what they can and cannot do in a public school because we don't have enough personnel to say, all right, you're out of this lesson, and then Johnny's out of the next one, and then Sarah's out of this one, and then we need all these adults watching these other people. We need to create all different sets of curriculum for different people. Uh, and so that worries me. And I think that in a lot of districts around this country, this is gonna be an inevitability. And as somebody who, yes, you pointed out, has been in there, you will be surprised what people will object to. There are like people who object to certain math problems, like especially when the Common Core was happening. Like some parents were like, "This is ridiculous!" Like, um, you know, like this conceptual math is like you know an Obama conspiracy or something. And then you know, am I supposed to opt your kid out of this this mm. test because of that? Like that's crazy to me, you know. So that's what I'm worried about. So I, I I do think like you know my my advice to progressives here is embrace don't don't oppose transparency writ large, but just tailor these things to make them sensible. And you can actually leverage this to make schools better. Uh, like even Randy Weingarten pointed out that good schools already do this. So my point to her would be, well, if good schools already do it, what can we do to make all schools do it? Well, that's a good point. And hopefully this improves education in America and doesn't destroy it. Um, now on to a story about Bitcoin. Two eccentric hackers with colorful backgrounds were arrested last week for conspiring to launder $4.5 billion, billion with a B, worth of stolen Bitcoin. The Bitcoin was stolen back in 2016 during a hack that targeted Bitfinex, a major crypto exchange at the time. Now, the stolen money represented one-sixth of all Bitcoin trading value in the world at that point. It took officials over five years to track this married couple down. The suspects, Ilya Lichtenstein, a.k.a. Dutch, and Heather Morgan. Uh, to make it even weirder, Morgan is also a rapper. She goes <laughs> by the stage name Razzlecon, and she can be seen in music videos defending her title as the, quote, crocodile of Wall Street. This song is for the entrepreneurs and hackers, all the misfits and smart slackers. What? Okay, um, <laughs> so naturally, Netflix ordered the rights for a documentary three days after the couple's arrest. Crypto has obviously come a long way since 2016, but critics say its primary use is still for crimes like this. Does this story back up that theory? Ravi, take me into the demented and savage world of Razzlecon. All right, so a couple things about this story. One is this, this couple, especially, uh, what's her name, Heather? Heather is like, I, it's almost like 2021 as a person. Like it's the only person who could only exist in the year 2021. It's like I, I this woman is, she could, there's no other possible time, even early 2020. Like it's just, she is so specific to the time period we exist right now. Um, so this movie is gonna be amazing. I think she has a long, you know, future in, in federal prison ahead of her. Um, <laughs> 
you know, and my brother, you know, he's a federal corrections officer. Yeah. Maybe he'll get her. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get some stories about that. Awesome. But, I, but I do think there's a couple things noteworthy to point out about the story. Number one is that she's out on bond. How is that possible? This is a billion dollar heist. If there ever was, uh, and, and there may be some easy, simple explanation for this, but if there ever was an explanation, a, a data point to suggest that we need massive bail reform, it's this. Because <laughs> it's like, how, why, what is the purpose of bail? Like at this point, like why, why would anybody else be stuck in prison? What's the explanation for that? And she's allowed out on a billion dollar heist. Talk Seems about a crazy to me, right? Like, I mean, obviously there's violent and nonviolent crime, yeah. but my assumption is that there's some nonviolent people, you know, awaiting trial in prison and jail. That that's, is puzzling to me. The second thing is this question that you pointed out, which is the use case debate, right? Like, why is this goofy story important? Uh, because people use these examples to say, all right, Bitcoin, its primary use case is for criminal activity like this. That's what people say. And so we looked this up. And so in 2021, the total transaction value for all cryptocurrency hit a record $15.8 trillion. So that was up 567%. An estimated 14 billion of that cryptocurrency was used for illicit, illicit transactions in 2021. So that actually represents an all-time low in compared to the share of all total cryptocurrency. So this is the lowest level of illegal transactions in cryptocurrency we've ever had. And I have like certain, I'm, I'm not a maximalist on, on cryptocurrency. I think there are all sorts of questions that need to be answered about it. But this whole criminal activity thing, I think it hasn't borne fruit. It, it certainly seems true of the early days, like, you know, the the um, American Kingpin stuff, like the Silk Road and all of that, if you were following those stories. But I don't think it's true anymore. But also Pablo Escobar had, you know, warehouses full of cash. Like that didn't mean that cash was bad. It just means that we need to have certain guidelines in place to to follow the flow of money. Congress is on it a little bit. You know, there are different parts of the Treasury that have gone even further recently to say that certain exchanges are liable if they violate san like foreign sanctions. And there's like a uh, very strict liability standard that we're using for this to say that even if you didn't even know you were facilitating a, a transaction that violates sanctions, that you would be held liable. So it seems that this stuff is tightening up and that criminal activity is relatively modest compared to the share of transactions in crypto. Definitely, and I think that's symptomatic of crypto becoming so much more mainstream. Obviously, the percentage of criminal activity is still concerning, but at the same time, I think it's worth noting that in some contexts, what is considered illegal activity in authoritarian countries might be things that we actually yeah. support in a way. And I'm not—I don't know yeah, what the details point. are, yeah. but you know, there's there's countries like China and Venezuela. I know China now has cracked down on crypto, but there are people that live under authoritarian, repressive regimes that have no control over their financial independence or even like there is there's a big crypto guy out in Barbados who said he is now worth millions and millions of dollars because in Barbados they don't have access to as as a whole to PayPal to credit cards to online banking information and so this is a way that you know there there's obviously going to be shortcomings but this is a way that people can circumvent bad government and even dissidents that have their bank accounts frozen and stuff like that like this is a way potentially if it's facilitated properly and the loopholes like what this couple exploited get tightened up then this could be an avenue towards truly worldwide economic freedom for people. Yeah, I think uh, Richie Torres, uh, the congressman, he made some points similar to that when about they talked about- yeah. Yeah, but when they talked about Bitcoin uh, uh, in the house. Uh, 
the rap video. I don't think that uh, <laughs> did her any favors no. to Heather Morgan because in it, she literally says, shout out to the entrepreneurs and the hackers. Like, yeah. it's yeah. kind of like, I don't know what it is about rap that leads people to like admit their crimes in it. Like, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, don't I have a feeling that. she's going to be n- dead to rights without this video. But, yeah. uh, but she's also a former Forbes contributor and she wrote like a ton of articles about um, cybersecurity and stuff. <laughs> and she was like just out in the open talking yeah. about exactly what she was doing this is gonna be a great netflix series well i point out a couple things i want to just underscore what ricky you said because i hadn't thought about this like you know if you're somebody trying to escape north korea and you have to pay chinese nationals for instance to help smuggle you over the border and and get to safety and all that and you're paying in crypto that's a great illegal use case of cryptocurrency and 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 Corey, we were talking about remittances is a big part of this debate like sending money back to your home country Mm -hmm. if you've ever tried to facilitate these transactions it's, it's like more paperwork than trying to adopt a child it's insane how hard it is to send money across borders and I understand why it's the case. Like, there's a lot of illegal activity that we want to be aware of illegal activity and prevent it, but it shouldn't be this hard. One thing I do want to mention, there is certain kind of crypto crime on the rise. There's this phenomenon called rug pulls, which is a relatively new scam on um, which developers build what appear to be legitimate cryptocurrency projects, and they get you to like invest in it in like in a fraudulent way and then they take your assets to something I think I know some mm-hmm. people like family members in the older side who you know the kind of people who respond to the sort of West African fake email that says you know I'm your whatever cousin or whatever remember like these things that used to come out um, and it turns out they weren't in West Africa I don't know why they picked Nigeria all the time and uh, sure. and then they came away with your money um, yeah. this is the new version of that you know interesting. very interesting yeah, yeah. I don't know. Why, I don't know why they picked Nigeria. You think they would pick like a like I don't know. Like, are you guys old enough to get that reference? No, Did I you get, get those yeah, emails? I've yeah, emails. Yeah. I've gotten emails yeah. before. Like, I'm a Nigerian <laughs> prince. You have to help me. Oh yeah, that's what yeah. it was. The Nigerian yeah. prince. Mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten those emails before. Uh, yeah, it always came from Hotmail. So I'm just wondering why that was the story. But I know some people who versions of that fell for that. Yeah. Um, and gave passwords yeah. away, bank accounts, things like that. Yeah. So Definitely. it's crazy. There's some Dr. Phil episodes about it. Um, also, the IRS never calls you. It's tax season. Those always happen too. I've gotten a bunch of those. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, they used to leave me voicemails saying, "This is the IRS. You are under arrest for not paying something." And it was like a there's a positive voice. version of it now where they say you you're eligible for a refund. Oh, uh, really? So they're using mm. positive framing now oh, for these scams. Oh, interesting, yeah. interesting yeah. flip there. Yeah. Interesting flip. Huh. Yeah, here's here's news, people. You tell the IRS when you're eligible for a refund, not the other way around. They're not going <laughs> to tell you you're eligible for that money. Yeah, uh, I don't think they have the bandwidth to do yeah. that. Uh, so we have a little bit of an update on uh, one of Robbie's favorite podcasts, uh, Breaking Points. <laughs> I do like them. I have to say, like, I just want to I want to use the kind of energy and scrutiny they bring to MSNBC to them. Uh, okay. It's, it's because I, I, I respect them so much. So we had previously last week talked about a February 7th segment in which Crystal Ball and Breaking Points uh, talked about how this emphasis on the Rogan story is a distraction from larger issues like inequality and things like that. And my we called it out saying like, look, there are a lot of segments that you're doing, including the very segment they were in, that appear to violate your principle, You know, whether it's talking about MSNBC, CNN, gossiping about the news. My sense was, given I'm sure they're avid listeners to the show, that they would have heard our critique and, and, and changed their ways. They did not. They have gone on to do four segments in the past three episodes on Rogan, including two segments in the very next episode on Rogan. And so just updating our listeners on this phenomenon, um, if you are a listener and, and an avid commenter on the Breaking Points site, you might, might want to go over there and just point this out in a very polite way. 
Uh, because I think every minute they spend on this is not a minute they're spending on things like quantitative easing and explaining, you know, how the Fed works or, you know, doing a deep dive into that inequality. And I actually think they provide a huge value on that front. And so I would just urge them again to, uh, already, to uphold their whole standard. I can already hear the comments saying, well, if you're worried about how much time they spend talking about Rogan, how much time do you spend talking about them talking about Rogan? Three minutes. <laughs> Three minutes. Yes. Done. And yes. this will be the end of my breaking point sets. Yes. <laughs> yes. Feedback is respect. Feedback is respect. That's true. Um, <laughs> great. Well, we thank you all for watching us and listening to us. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you all next time.